You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, it is such a comfort and a joy to our hearts to know that we belong to you, that you have called us and you have called us by name. And we thank you that your sheep hear your voice and they come to you and you give to them eternal life. And we thank you that you have, as the God of the universe and the creator of all things, would stoop to save sinners such as us. What a marvelous grace this is. And we behold it in our own lives day after day. And we behold it also in the pages of Scripture and in the life of your servant Saul of Tarsus, who was converted by that very same grace. We pray today as we look at this account in the book of Acts of this salvation and this grace that you administer to our hearts and remind us again just of how great and loving and forceful your grace is. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the history of Christianity, there are two central figures in the Christian faith. The first, of course, is the founder of our faith, and he is the preeminent one, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. He is preeminent because he is God incarnate. He is God become man, and he is the founder of our faith and the one that we worship and give homage and obedience and reverence to, and rightly so, and because he is God incarnate. The second most significant person in the history of Christianity is Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. And I am in no way equating in substance or nature Saul of Tarsus with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is preeminent, of course, and I've said before, and I would contend still, that the second most influential person in the history of the world has to have been Saul of Tarsus. You cannot understand the Christian faith or the rapid spread of Christianity or even Christianity as we know it today apart from the influence of those two men. Of course, Jesus Christ, but second, Saul of Tarsus. And any time you begin to study church history or you begin to study Scripture, or you begin to try and understand Christian doctrine, or the Christian movement, or the Christian faith, you are going to inevitably be drawn back like a magnet to the person of Saul of Tarsus, and you are going to be forced to reckon with him and with his influence on world history. You must. If there are two central figures in the history of the Christian faith, then there are also two central events in the history of the Christian faith that really have shaped everything else. The central event pertaining to the person of Jesus Christ is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, you have no Christianity, you have no faith, you have no church history, you have no church, you have no disciples, you have no heaven, no hell, nothing. Just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. There's no afterlife, nothing. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no Christian faith. That takes the sum and substance of the whole New Testament, the whole Gospel, and strips it. It has nothing. The central event connected with the person of Saul of Tarsus is his Damascus Road conversion. Now, skeptics and agnostics and atheists are forced to explain away the resurrection. And having done that, or tried to do that, they are then forced back to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And if you are a skeptic or an atheist who accepts as a presupposition that resurrections do not happen and that there is nothing supernatural and that everything we find in the pages of Scripture can be explained as a myth or a legend or some 
concocted story, if that is your presupposition, then you will be forced to explain the empty tomb and what happened to this man, Saul of Tarsus. And every Easter, every time we get around to the time of the resurrection, March and April, we get all of the History Channel documentaries and all the Time magazines and all the National Geographic articles and all the websites that try and explain the resurrection apart from what happened in Scripture. And they say, well, the disciples stole the body, which is the oldest lie in the book. Literally, it's in the book. It's the oldest lie. The disciples stole the body. Or we really don't know what happened to the body. It probably was eaten by dogs or thrown into a mass grave or just in an ignominious tomb somewhere. And years later, the disciples concocted all these stories about a resurrection. Now, having done that and having believed that lie, which takes more faith than to believe that there is a God who actually raises the dead, having believed that lie, then people are forced to reckon with the conversion of Saul and Tarsus. Because every historian has to admit two things about Saul of Tarsus. Number one, he was at one time the most vehement, the most hostile, the most antagonistic persecutor that the church had ever seen. And second, he then became the most ardent supporter and preacher and popular preacher that the world has ever known. How do you account for such a change? Well, skeptics have their ways. Just like they try and explain away the resurrection, they try and explain away the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And let me tell you how they do this. First, they'll say Saul of Tarsus was suffering from heat stroke. Suffering from heat stroke. Out on that hot Damascus road, you know how hot it can get in the Middle East during the summer months particularly? You get out there and get up to 120, 130 degrees in the sun, and the sun is beating down to you, and the, the heat from the sand is beating up against you, and it was high noon, and he was out there. He was likely dehydrated, probably had traveled all night, and he got out there, and in the mixture of that heat, and in the mixture of the the, the dehydration, he just simply swooned from it. He kind of blacked out. He went blind for a period of time. And it was a heat stroke. And in the midst of that heat stroke, since he was so fixated on the person of Christ and opposing Christ, Saul of Tarsus, when he started to have delusions in his heat stroke, actually deluded that he had seen this risen Christ and been commissioned to preach. And so that is what happened on the Damascus Road. It wasn't a supernatural event. It wasn't a revelation. It wasn't an actual seeing of Jesus Christ. It was heat stroke. I have a lot of faith to believe that. Or second, they'll say, it wasn't a heat stroke, it was a hallucination. You know, you get out in the middle of the heat and you start thinking about one thing and you get tired, maybe you traveled all night and he got out there on the Damascus Road and he started to sort of see things. He had some bad chicken the night before, something was coming back up on him and he started to have some hallucinations. His eyes were playing tricks on him. I remember one time when I was traveling back from Christmas vacation during, I think it was my second or third year of Bible college, we had left... Uh, we had left down here. We were traveling all night long, had a carload full of students. And when we arrived at the school early, early in the morning, after driving all night long through a, a snowstorm, I had no sleep, and got there early in the morning. I remember driving on those those flat, lonely prairie highways out in the middle of southern Saskatchewan. And my eyes started playing tricks on me. I've seen lights. I've seen things moving in the ditches. You know how you have those happen when you're really tired, your eyes start to play tricks on you? They say, well, that's what happened with Saul of Tarsus. Or they say, third, maybe it wasn't a heat stroke, maybe it wasn't a hallucination, maybe it was just an epileptic fit. He had a seizure, and in the midst of the seizure, he thought he saw Jesus Christ, he thought he was commissioned to preach, and that explains the change in Saul of Tarsus. You buy any of that? You know the problem with people who reject revelation and reject the supernatural and reject God's Word? The problem is not that they don't believe anything, the problem is that they'll believe anything. The problem is that they will believe almost anything. And people actually believe that in an attempt to explain away Saul of Tarsus. Why is that? Because his conversion is one of the hinges upon which world history turns. And if you think that might be an overstate, uh, overstatement, just let me ask you, 
I want you to imagine for a second world history as we know it and then remove everything that springs from the life and the influence of the Apostle Paul. D. James Kennedy, a few years back, I think it was in the 90s, wrote a book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And the purpose of the book was to show that all of the good things and the blessings and the things that have come to humanity just because of the birth of Christ and the influence that he has had. That book needs a sequel. What if Saul of Tarsus had never been converted? Now, if Jesus of Nazareth had never been born, Saul of Tarsus never would have been converted. But ask yourself, what would history look like if you simply took the Apostle Paul out like a It's a Wonderful Life scenario? You remove him from world history and say, this is what the world would be like without Saul of Tarsus. Without Saul of Tarsus, without the Apostle Paul, you'd have not even half your New Testament books. You wouldn't have the Gospel of Luke. You wouldn't have the book of Acts. And he would not have written the magnum opus, which is the book of Romans, his theological magnum opus. He wouldn't have written that. Without the book of Romans, you would have no Reformation. Without the Reformation, you'd have no Puritans, no Protestants, no Protestant work ethic. You would still have dark ages. Without the Protestant work ethic, you'd have no industrial revolution, no printing press, no desire for people to go to another continent to worship according to their conscience, and you would have had no founding of massive denominations and religious awakenings in the United States, which all prompted not only the Great Awakening, but also the Revolutionary War and the founding of this country, which was founded on Reformation Calvinistic theology for the first 150 years of our history, and you would have no American as we know it today. If it was founded, it would have been founded completely different. All of that from the Apostle Paul. Remove him and ask yourself, what would the world be like without him? It would be a dark place. Well, I, for one, am thankful that on the Damascus Road, the power and the grace of God showed up to convert Saul of Tarsus. So significant was that event, listen, that Luke records it not once and not twice, but three times separate times in the book of Acts. Three times. That shows just how significant it was to Luke. The first one is in Acts chapter 9 when Luke is just telling us the story, sort of from a third-person perspective of how it happened and what happened. The second time was in Acts chapter 22 when it is the Apostle Paul himself that is telling the story to the Jews from the steps in the fortress Antonio, giving his defense before them after they had tried to beat him to death and Lysias had seized him down in the temple and was taking him into the, the barracks. Paul stopped and said, can I speak to them? And then beginning to speak to them, Paul tells the story of his conversion and his commissioning to ministry. And the third time is in Acts chapter 26. And I want you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 26. This third time is before King Agrippa in Caesarea. Having been arrested and now standing before King Agrippa, the Apostle Paul gives all of his biographical information, his background. Here's who I am. Here's how I was raised. Here's what I believed. I was a Pharisee. That's his religious background. Trained at the feet of Gamaliel. Wonderful educational pedigree. And his persecution background is given that he was hostile to the church. He was furiously enraged at Christians so that he was pursuing them even to foreign cities. And then we pick it up, and I want you to begin reading with me at verse 12. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus, with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, 
but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that I may, they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, verses 12 through verse 15 is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Verses 16 through 18 is the commissioning of Saul of Tarsus. And we're going to take those in two different stages. Today, we're going to look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in verses 12 through 15. Now, I did this this week. And if you were to take all three of these accounts, the one in chapter 9, the one in chapter 22, and the one in chapter 26, and you were to put them on one piece of paper, and you were to read through all three of them, and compare and contrast them and say, what similarities are there in these three accounts? And what things are different? You would notice that there are a lot of differences, not contradictions, but differences. It's as if Luke wants to tell the story three times, but he knows if he just repeats it three times without adding any kind of detail or explanation or any kind of new material, that we would get bored with it. So every time he tells the story, he adds some fresh insight, a fresh perspective. Once you get it from Luke's perspective, the next time you get it from Paul's perspective, and each time Paul tells it, once in chapter 22 and once in chapter 26, he tells it sort of emphasizing two different aspects or elements of his conversion experience. You would notice that there are some differences. For instance, you'll notice that there are things that are missing from what we just read that we read in chapter 9 and, verse, and chapter 22. Did you notice that Paul doesn't mention that he was blinded? In chapter 26, do you notice that he doesn't mention Ananias? He doesn't mention that it was a Jew who came in and laid hands on him? Do you notice that Paul leaves out his baptism? Do you notice that Paul leaves out the scales falling from his eyes? Paul leaves out all of those. Why? Is he trying to deceive Agrippa? Not at all. What Paul is doing is he's telling the story from two different perspectives and he's emphasizing certain details of what happened that day to make a point. When he does it to the Jews, he emphasizes Ananias and the healing and the commissioning in the temple and uh, the fact that Ananias was a devout Jew. When he talks to Agrippa, he leaves out all the sort of the Jewishism and he's emphasizing the theology behind what it was that happened to him. And he's emphasizing the prophetic and the commissioning element of his ministry for maximum effect on King Agrippa. Now I'll show you what is new in this account that's not in the other two as we go through. Let's begin at verse 12. Paul says, while I was so engaged... Engaged in what? Engaged in persecution. While I thought that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus, and while I was going from synagogue to synagogue, rounding up Christians to persecute them and to, to torture them and to punish them and to try and force them to blaspheme, while I was so furiously enraged at Christians, this is what happened to me, King. Paul says it was in the midst and in the middle of my hostility and my opposition to the Christian faith, that is when I was converted. Now, it's essential that you understand the reason that Paul thinks that's so significant, because all three accounts mention this. It was while Paul was in the midst of his rebellion that Jesus Christ appeared to him and converted him. Now, why is that significant? Because the Apostle Paul wants you and I to understand, Luke wants you and I to understand, and Paul wants Agrippa to know that when Christ appeared to him, he was not seeking God. No man seeks after God. He was not pursuing Christ. He was not wondering about Jesus. He wasn't riding along on his donkey saying, you know, I wonder if Jesus really is the Messiah. And if He is the Messiah, I wonder if the Christians are right about everything that He did. I wonder if the disciples really didn't steal the body. If He did rise from the dead, I wonder if it would sort of fit in with all the Old Testament things that I've learned. Would that be a fulfillment? Boom! Bright light, voice from heaven. That's not how it happened. He had made up his mind about who Jesus Christ was. He was a liar, a deceiver, a hypocrite, a fraud, a sham, and everyone who believed in him deserved death. 
He had made up his mind about that. He wasn't at all considering the claims of Christ. In fact, he was while he was so engaged in his rebellion that God stopped him. And so hostile was Paul. So antagonistic was Paul. He wasn't ambivalent at all. There's no ambivalence in this man. Not one bit. That he had gone to the chief priest, to Annas and Caiaphas and to the Sanhedrin, and he had asked them for letters. Now Paul just says in verse 12 that he had, he was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. He had the authority and the commission of the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, and Caiaphas had given him permission in the form of letters, we find out in other places, in the form of letters to go into the synagogues and any synagogue, any gathering of Jews that recognized the authority of the Sanhedrin over them would gladly allow Saul of Tarsus and his temple police in and everybody else that was traveling with him, his whole entourage of people who were involved in this persecuting endeavor, they would gladly let him in to interrogate people and to round up Christians and to imprison them. So he had authority and he could walk into the synagogue and say, here I have a piece of paper, you need to read this, this is from Caiaphas, this is what I'm here for. And what Saul is emphasizing is that it was it was him, it was he who had gone to the chief priests and requested the letters. He wasn't forced into doing this. I believe he was a member of the Sanhedrin. I argued for that last week. I believe he was there. And I think that the Sanhedrin gladly, when they saw Paul and they saw that he was willing to be their pit bull, their bulldog, and to go after Christians, they said, you bet. Caiaphas said, we're looking for volunteers and we got one. I'll sign the paper and I'll hand it to you. And they gave him that authority and off he went. And he had that authority from the chief priests and the and the Sanhedrin. Now listen, what that tells me and what Paul's emphasizing is what he was doing was not illegal. Do you understand that? It was perfectly legal. He had authority to do it. It was legal under the Jewish law system and because Rome recognized the Jewish uh, structure of law under the Old Testament, it was legal as far as Rome was concerned. He was never brought up on trial for charges of killing people because what he was doing was legal. It was a legalized persecution authorized by the Sanhedrin. And he was right in the middle of doing all of that when Christ arrested him. On his way to Damascus, up in verse 11, he says that he was in many foreign cities, pursuing them even to foreign cities. Damascus was on his list. He had his letter to the church or to the synagogue in Damascus. On his way to Damascus, that is when it happened. And the other account, I think it's chapter 22, says it was about noontime. Chapter 9 says it was about midday. While the Middle Eastern sun is high in the sky and the heat is there and the sun is there, probably on a bright cloudless day in the middle of broad daylight, a light shines that Saul of Tarsus has never seen before in his life. A light that is so piercing, so bright, so overwhelming that if your mind can possibly comprehend that light, it's brighter than that. Imagine the brightest thing you could possibly ever see in your life, brighter than that. Hard to imagine that, isn't it? Paul says it was brighter than the sun. How long can you look at the sun? Now there's a reason that Paul describes the brightness of the light, and there's a reason why Luke includes it in all three accounts, and it's this. All the Jews and everybody understood that light was not only a metaphor for salvation. You go from darkness to light when you're saved. Light was also something that was associated with the very nature, the presence, the glory, the throne of heaven itself. And in all three accounts of Paul's conversion, it says it was a light from heaven. It is as if this dimension cracked open and heaven shone down on Paul and all who were with him. This piercing, blinding light 
so radiated down that Saul was knocked to the dust, and it says, all of them fell down together. All who were with him fell down in the dust, forced to the ground by this light. And although everybody saw the light, not everybody saw Jesus. The light was enough to push everybody down into the dust, but only Paul saw the risen Christ. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 15, that he saw the Lord. At this conversion experience, he saw the Lord. And he saw Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, I think it is, says that Jesus Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who dwells in light unapproachable. So it's that type of light. And as, and as Agrippa and all of those people who are gathered there with Agrippa, as they listen to Paul describe this light, you know what they understand him to be saying? They understand Paul to be saying, I saw none other than God. I got a glimpse into the throne room and the heaven of God. It's like the sky split open and the sun became dark in comparison to this light and he was blinded by it. That happened about noontime and then look at verse, look at verse 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, and only here is it, is it mentioned that he was spoken to in the Hebrew dialect. That's significant. Here's why. Agrippa, remember, was a practicing Jew, even though he wasn't born a Jew. He was a practicing Jew. He was an expert in all things Jewish. Jewish customs, Jewish culture, Jewish prophets, Jewish scripture. He knew it all. He was the resident expert on all things Jewish. So Paul wants Agrippa to know, when Jesus spoke to me, he spoke to me in the Hebrew dialect, which was the language of the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament scriptures. He spoke to me in scripture's tongue. Because what Paul's going to do, and we're going to see this next week, is he's going to say, when Jesus commissioned me to ministry, he commissioned me in the language of and using phrases from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and all of these Old Testament prophets. So he's using prophetic language, and he wants Agrippa to know, Jesus didn't speak to me in Greek. He spoke to me in Hebrew, which is the language that the Jews, all of them, recognize as the language of the tongue of God in which he gave his word, the Hebrew dialect. And look what he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I just want you to notice two things about that question. First of all, I want you to notice how personal it is. You notice that? Although everybody who was there with Saul of Tarsus saw the light, not all of them, none of them but Saul saw Jesus. All of them, it says in the three accounts, heard a sound, but only Paul was able to understand the words and the voice that was speaking to him. All of them were forced to the dust, but only Saul of Tarsus is said to have been converted. So all of them see the light, all of them hear the sound, all of them are forced to the dust. Saul is converted and Jesus says to him personally, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you understand how personal salvation is when God calls your name? Do you understand how personal that is? I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I was sitting in a room with about a hundred other teenagers. And when the preacher began to explain the gospel, it is as if everybody else in that room disappeared. And it was as if that preacher was standing there talking to me. And for all I could have known, the preacher wasn't even there. I was hearing the voice of God. And the conviction of the Spirit of God and the work of the Word of God was so bearing upon my heart as to almost crush me when I got saved. And I don't even remember what row I was in. I don't remember how, whoever else was there. I don't know. I just know I was sitting there and I heard Him speaking to me and I heard Jesus Christ call His sheep's name. And I had to come. So Jesus meant when He said, I, my sheep know me. And I know my sheep, and they hear my voice, and they come to me. And here is Jesus Christ saying to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And it is as if everybody else on the Damascus Road has suddenly disappeared. He had other people with him. I don't know how many. Temple guard, people to bring back the prisoners. Probably a large entourage, I would think. But Jesus Christ singled him out personally. 
It was as if that preacher, when he was explaining the gospel, knew my sin, my background, my history, my personalities. If somebody had written him a note, my dossier, my file, and handed it to him, he knew everything there was to know about me. He knew my need. He knew the answer to my need. He knew everything. How did he know that? I don't know. But I do know this, that while he was speaking, Jesus Christ was calling my name. And he was saying, you're mine. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Notice not only how personal is this call to salvation, but notice also how personal is the offense against the Lord. Why do you persecute whom? Me. If you had asked Saul of Tarsus, who are you persecuting? Who do you think he would have said? I'm persecuting a bunch of ignorant fishermen. They used to be fishermen. Now they're self-appointed preachers. A bunch of ignorant fishermen preachers. They go from town to town, house to house, leading people into their own delusions. I'm persecuting a bunch of housewives. Persecuting a bunch of kids. A bunch of shopkeepers, a bunch of tax collectors, a bunch of no good Jewish citizens who can't tell the difference between truth and error. That's the answer he would have given you. Who are you persecuting, Saul? He would never have said, I'm persecuting God. But that was the answer. Why are you persecuting me? Not why did you persecute Stephen? Not why are you persecuting the Christians in Damascus? Not why are you persecuting my people? But why do you persecute me? And here's the beauty in this, in this whole conversion experience. It is that all of the hostility and the hatred and the animosity and all of the beatings and the suffering that are done to the people of God are done to Christ. So united with and so one with His people is Jesus Christ that everything that happens to us happens to Him. He said, what you've done unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto whom? Me. He takes it all to Himself. And suddenly Paul woke up and realized, Everything I have been doing is not to Stephen and not to Joe and not to this other guy named David who's also a Christian. It's not to individual people. I've been persecuting God Himself. And he realized all of that hostility and everything had been vented not just toward Christians, but toward Christ. Now friends, if if the world hates you, it's because they hated Him first. If they persecute you, it's because they persecuted Him first. If the world would have loved Him, it would love you. But you're not of the world. You're chosen out of the world. You're called out of the world. You're not the world's, and so therefore the world hates you. But what do they really hate in you? They really hate Christ. What is it going to be like on that day, on Judgment Day, when Voltaire and Hitler and Hussein and Lenin and Marx and Stalin, and Darwin, and all of those men stand before this glorious Lord and suddenly realize that everything they have done against Christianity and everything they have done against the church and everything they have done against Christians has been done against their judge. What's that going to be like? What will it be like on Judgment Day when people who have sat within these very walls, some of them in the pews in which you are sitting, realize that all of the hostility and the animosity and the resistance and the resentment that they have had toward Christ, even after hearing the Gospel and leaving here mocking, and I've heard them mock, suddenly realize that all of that hostility and all of that animosity that was vented toward you and I and all of that disdain that they had for the preacher and for the message and for the church was really against their judge. What's that going to be like? Boy, that just makes you tremble, doesn't it? When you realize it's not individuals against whom Saul was sinning, Jesus says, why were you persecuting me? Now look at the next phrase. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? It's hard for you to kick 
against the goads. And why does Jesus say that? This is where it's mentioned. It's not mentioned in the previous two accounts. But here the Apostle Paul says, when Jesus appeared to me, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It was a well-known proverb, an agricultural proverb, and here's what it, here's what it meant. When a farmer would take, or husbandman would take an ox, and they would uh, yoke it up for plowing a field, if the ox didn't move, they, the farmer, the master, would take a rod, a, a long rod, long enough to poke the back end of the ox in front of him, and at the end of this rod was a sharp iron point. And the master would try and sort of goad the ox on, and he would use the rod to poke the hind quarter of the ox, and the ox, most of the time, rather than just moving, would kick against the goad, because he felt the sharp pain. And when the ox kicked against the goad, or kicked back in protest to the stimulation to move, the master would hold the rod there and hold it steady, so that when the ox kicked, he would actually drive the goad even further into his own flesh. And then the master would poke the ox again. This is in the day before they had cattle prods and electricity and had harness electricity for putting into cattle prods. This is what they used. And they would goad the ox. And the ox would kick back and drive that goad even further into their flesh. And they would do that and eventually the ox would move. Now if you've ever worked with animals of any kind, stock, then you know just how stubborn and obstinate and stupid they are. You can poke them and they will push right back into what is poking them until the point of that thing is driven deep into their flesh. This is a wonderful, wonderful illustration of Saul of Tarsus. How appropriate is this? Because the analogy that the Lord uses illustrates and speaks a few things to the Apostle Paul. First of all, it shows the Apostle Paul just how futile was his efforts. Just how futile were his efforts. That ox can kick. And what is going to happen? Is the ox going to win? Not at all, and never. But just how futile is the ox's efforts? How futile is it to spend your whole life opposing God, resisting grace, persecuting Christians like Saul of Tarsus, only to realize at the end of your life that you haven't even put a dent in the church of God? I love how C.H. Spurgeon says it. Listen to Spurgeon. If you think, O man, that you can stop the progress of Christ's church, go first and bid the universe to stand still instead of circling around the fair stars. Go and stand by the winds and bid them to cease blowing or take your station upon the seashore and bid the roaring sea to roll back when its tide is marching on the beach. When you have stopped the universe, when the sun, the moon, and the stars have all been obedient to your mandate, and when the sea has heard you and obeyed, then come forth and stop the omnipotent progress of the church of Christ. But you can't do it. Hear what he says? Kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together and plot against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let's tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. Psalm 2 says, and the Lord sits. He doesn't even bother to stand to deal with the opposition. He sits in heavens and He scoffs at them. How futile is that? Go ahead and try and stop the progress of the church. Go ahead and stop, try and stop the work of grace in somebody's heart. And you will find that you have a better chance of putting out the sun with a squirt gun. And once you put out the sun with a squirt gun, then come back and try and stop the work of God. How futile is that? Second, how stupid is that? How stupid of it is it, uh, is it of an animal to so resist the, the goad that he would kick and bloody his own leg, his own hindquarter, his own calf on the prod of the goad? How stupid is that? And you look at an animal and you poke them and they kick back and it hurts worse. And you poke them a little bit and they kick back and it hurts worse. And they bloody up their hindquarters. 
And you say to yourself, what a stupid animal. There's a reason you're not at the top of the food chain. There's a reason you're going to be on my dinner table in a few months. It's because you're so stupid. You couldn't survive without me. How stupid is the animal? And how stupid is it for Saul to think that he can oppose the grace of God, the church, and the gospel of Christ? How stupid. But friends, that's not even the, that's not even the main point of the whole analogy. You know what the main point of the whole analogy is? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And here is what Jesus is saying to Paul. Saul, kick as you will, but you will move. You will move. Because you see, friends, it is not the will of the master that yields to the will of the ox. You understand that? When you prod that ox, that ox can kick. He can kick out of spite. He can kick out of hatred. He can kick out of anger. He can kick because he wishes he was kicking your face. He can kick all he wants, but he's only hurting himself. But eventually, and that is the point of this proverb, and this is how it was used in that day, eventually the ox will move. It must, and it will move, because it is the master that will dominate the will of that creature. Eventually that ox will move, and then that ox will wonder, what did I ever get for standing around in the first place? How did this profit me? I should have been moving a long time ago. The pain stopped. But eventually the ox will move. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is saying to Saul. You can kick as you will, but Saul, you will preach my gospel. You will suffer for my namesake. You will, you will serve me. You are mine. I'm calling your name. There's nothing you can do. You can kick against the goads. It's going to be hard, but you are going to move. Because friends, when there is a conflict between the will of God and the will of Saul, who wins? Who wins? If you answer Saul to that, you have a pathetic view of God and a far arrogant view of man. And what the Lord is saying is, well, let me just tell you this, the Lord does not yield His goad to your kicks. Kick as you want, but you will move. And you will be His eventually. Why? Because He's called your name. And you can resist it, and you can bloody yourself, and you can push it and resist it right to the very end. But God does not yield His goad to our kicks. And He is saying to Saul, you're going to move. Because you belong to Me. Listen to Spurgeon again. If the Lord means to make you a Christian, if the Lord means to make a Christian out of you, you may kick against Christianity, but He will have you at last. If Jesus Christ intends your salvation, you may curse Him, but He will make you preach His gospel one day if He likes to do so. If Christ had willed it, Voltaire, who cursed him, might have been made a second Apostle Paul. He could not have resisted sovereign grace if Christ had so determined. That's the point of that analogy. Kick as you will, but you're mine. And it'll be hard, and you'll be the one bloody, and don't think that you're going to come out of resisting unscathed, because I'm not going to yield my goad to your kicks. You are the creature, and I am the Creator, and my will will dominate your will, and you will serve me, you will preach me, because you belong to me. And there's nothing you can do to get away from that, Saul. That's hard to stomach, isn't it? Some people say, well, maybe, maybe the whole thought of kicking against the goads is just the Lord saying to Saul, your conscience has been bothering you. It doesn't have anything to do with his ability to force Paul to do this. It's just... He had felt guilty about what he did to Stephen. He had felt guilty about what he was going to do in Damascus. He had felt guilty about all of his persecuting activities. It was just his conscience that was goading him on, and Paul was resisting that. I don't buy that for a minute, and I'll tell you why. 
Twice previously in the book of Acts, and we've looked at both occurrences, the Apostle Paul said, I have lived with a clear conscience before God up until this day. It wasn't his conscience that was bothering him. He had a clear conscience, friends. His conscience was misinformed. He thought he was doing God's service. He thought he was serving God and honoring God in what he was doing. He was misinformed about it. His conscience wasn't bothering him one iota. That is why Paul says it was in the midst of my hostility that Christ did this. It was while I was engaged in persecution. He wasn't feeling guilty about it. Not at all. He wasn't doing anything illegal. He thought he was doing his duty. Back in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were brought in before the council, and remember I told you I think Paul was on that council to hear this, and everybody in the council wanted to kill the 12 apostles. They're standing there before the council, and everybody's embittered against them, and they're just about ready to execute all 12 of them. And up stands one of the most respected members, the most respected member on the whole council. His name was Gamaliel. And Gamaliel says, look, friends, I suggest we take sort of a wait-and-see approach to this. This movement is either from men or it's from God. If it's of men, it's going to peter out, just like every other movement of man does. If it's of God, then you should leave it alone because you might be found to fight against God. And then two chapters later, one of Gamaliel's students decides he's going to reject the wisdom of his mentor and he decides he's going to fight against God. And now I wonder, with his face in the dust and the light shining in his bright, were the words, his eyes, the bright light shining in his eyes, were the words of his master ringing in his head, you might be found to fight against God. You might be found to fight against God. You think he was hearing that? Saul suddenly realizes, I'm in a losing battle and I'm on the wrong end of the goad. And Jesus has just told him, I am not going to yield my goad to your kicks. You're going to do what I want you to do. And you will yield, you will obey, you will move forward. This happened in my family, and uh, so I'm not going to share any names with you because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but when my oldest daughter was about three years old, we were having some trouble getting her to go to sleep at nights, and uh, she had just graduated to a big girl's bed, which meant that no railing on the side, and um, she could crawl in and crawl out, and we started to go through, when she graduated to a big girl's bed, we started to go through this little ritual every night where we would, she would sit on my lap, and we would pray with her, and then we would put her to bed, and then Three, four minutes would go by, and we'd hear some rustle in the other room. We'd go in there, and she'd be down in the middle of the floor playing with whatever it is. We'd put her in bed, and and then she would hear some rustling in there. She'd be down in the middle of the floor, and we'd put her in bed, and then she would start to cry and throw a fit, and she'd get so worked up that she was screaming and all this. And so we would go inside, and I would spank her, corporal discipline, with love. We'd spank her. We'd put her to pray with her again, put her to bed, and leave, and that would be it. This happened for like two weeks. Every night it was the same thing. And I thought, you know, I'm just sick of this pattern. So one night, Deidre brought her in and sat her on my lap, and we were getting ready to pray. And so I asked her, I said, so how are you going to go to bed tonight? And she was almost three, so she, she could understand this whole thing that I'm about to explain to you. So how are you going to go to bed tonight? Quite sure what I meant. So how are you going to go to bed tonight? What do you mean? I said, well, are you going to go to bed tonight your way or my way? Still didn't know what I was talking about. I said, let me explain your way. This is what happened when we do it your way. We do it your way. I, we pray together and we take you inside and you put you in your bed and then you get out and you play around. We put you back in bed and you get out and you play around. Put you back in bed and you start screaming and hollering, fussing, throw a big fit. I give you a spanking. We pray together and then you go to sleep. Or you could do it my way. That's your way. My way is that we pray together. I put you in bed. You stay in bed. You go to sleep. Notice the difference between the two? One has a spanking. One has no spanking. So I said, how are you going to go to bed tonight? Your way or my way? Stop for a second. Your way. Great. We prayed together. Put her in bed. 
She went to sleep. Next night, same thing. How are you going to go to bed tonight? Your way or my way? Your way. We did this for about two weeks. Solved the problem. I stopped doing that after a while. And she would start to sort of go back toward that same pattern. I start fussing and start resisting it. And I just have to ask her, are you going to do this your way? Or are you going to do it my way? Friends, that is exactly what Jesus Christ is saying to Saul. We can do this your way or we can do this my way. But eventually, we're going to do it. It's hard for you to kick against the goad, Saul. I'm not going to yield my goad to your kicks. So do it and do it without being bloodied. Now, the next question that Saul asks, I think he knew the answer to it before he even asked it. Who are you? Lord? Yeah, I think he had a sneaking suspicion, right? Heavens open up in the bright light in the throne of God and Jesus standing there and him seeing all of this and being blinded and hearing the voice, you're persecuting me. Who, who are you? I think just to double check. Are you the Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. My friends, at that moment, I don't even think you can possibly understand how undone the Apostle Paul would have felt. Have you ever gotten news that once you heard it, it's like the bottom of your stomach just fell out and hit the floor and all the color drained out of your face and you just wonder, how am I going to face the next hour? You ever received news like that? Here was a man who had invested all of his life, all of his learning, all of his efforts, all of his person, everything he had was invested in wiping out Christianity. And with the words, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, Saul understands this Jesus is God He is Master, He is Lord, and He has a calling on my life, and if I don't yield, He's going to crush me. And His whole life is turned upside down. Everything He has lived for, everything He has believed, He now comes to understand it was all a sham, it was all a lie. I believed a lie, and I killed people for this lie. Everything's undone. He has nothing. He has to start from scratch. He has to learn all over. Everything He has believed has been seen to be a shadow. He had made up His mind. And now he's wrong. And it's 180 degrees the opposite of what he expected. Imagine being married to your spouse, your wife, for 20 years, and then finding out that she was once a man. Imagine that. How would you feel? If you can imagine that, you can almost get a glimpse of what it is like to have your whole life taken from you with Saul of Tarsus. Everything he had was gone. And Paul says, I suffered the loss of all things. I had nothing. It was all stripped from him. All his beliefs, all of his passions, all of his drives, everything he had lived for was taken from him. And he suddenly understood, everything I believed for all these years has been a lie. I've been deceived. I was undone. Now, the account of Saul of Tarsus is not given to us in Scripture just to satisfy our, our, or to merely satisfy our curiosity about how he got saved. There are some things that were intended to learn from this. The first one is that the the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is intended to be to us an example. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he speaks of his own conversion. Listen to what he says. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. I am the chief of sinners. But for the, Yet for all of this reason I found mercy, that is, that in me as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience 
as an example for all of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says he made an example out of me. You know what he's an example of? He's an example of the depth of the grace of God. That the God of all of the heavens would stop what he's doing and stoop down and seize a hold of that man. How deep must be God's grace? And you and I can look at the Apostle Paul, and anytime we have in our minds or in our thoughts ever creeping in saying, that guy's beyond the grace of God. He's too hardened. He's too lost. He's too deep in his sin. He's too hostile to the faith. We ought to think of the Apostle Paul and say, no, he is an example for all of those who would believe in him for eternal life. That if there is grace enough to save the chief of sinners, there is grace enough to save my uncle, my aunt, my brother, my sister, my co-worker, or anybody else that you're witnessing to that you think is quote-unquote beyond the grace of God. You have people like that in your life, don't you? You think, oh, they're beyond the grace of God. No, Paul is an example to us that nobody is ever beyond the grace of God. So we never give up preaching. We never give up teaching. We never give up evangelizing or discipling or witnessing or sharing Christ or ministering to people because you never know when some, when the Lord is going to come down out of heaven and say, okay, enough kicking against the goads, you're mine. And He'll save them. The second thing that we learn from Saul of Tarsus and his conversion is that when the Lord calls His sheep, they come. The Lord will eventually get those who are His, friends. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 6. My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. And I call them by name and they know me. And I will gather them in and all who come to me will not perish. None of them will perish. I will lose none of them. I'll call them all in. I'll bring them all in and I'll raise them all up. And Saul was one of those sheep. Traveling along the road to Damascus, the chief shepherd said, Saul, Saul, you're mine. Kick against the goads as you will, but you're mine. And because you're mine, I have you. So you can do this your way. You can do this my way. And Saul said, I'll do it your way. Your way's easier. I don't have to get bloodied from the goad. Friends, I don't know about you, but I for one am so tremendously thankful for not only the depth of the grace of God, but the power of the grace of God that He would select, choose, call, and save each one of us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Your grace and for its salvation that it brings Thank you that we are your sheep. Thank you that you know us by name. Thank you that you call us. And thank you that you do not yield your goad to our kicks. For if you did, we would perish. We thank you that you have the sovereign and powerful grace to overcome our resistance and our sin, to save us no matter how far we have fallen, and then to sanctify us and eventually present us holy and faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. We give you praise this morning and thanks for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.